The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au John chapter 3, and we'll read the whole verse. Beginning from verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God." Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak the way we do now, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe, if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. After these things came came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, 
And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also baptizing in Anon near to Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that had the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him, heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he had seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that had received his testimony hath said to his seal that God is true. For he whom God had sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son of Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Well, good morning. We're going to try that one more time. Good morning. morning. Very good. It's good to see some back from holidays and and, uh, some recovered from the the dread malingus that is going around all over Noble Park. Good to see you back with us again. A couple of quick explanations. Tonight, the uh, Celebrate the Reformation is not going to be a dry, boring sermon It is going to be a little bit of church history, a little bit of biography. I have uh, scrounged around the internet, found as many photographs and pictures and uh, old copies of woodcut engravings and so on. We'll have them off the overhead. It will be a little bit interactive. Uh, We'll hopefully keep it um, light but informative. There will be a little bit of a point of the whole thing as well. And my goal is not to give you the standard Luther, Calvin, uh, Reformation stories, just to give you some men um, that come from different parts, maybe that you don't know much about. Uh, John Wycliffe, uh, Jan Hus, uh, some of the English reformers, and so on. So I encourage you, if you can, come out tonight. Uh, we'll have some fun. Uh, we'll try and do some music. I'm not sure how well that's going to work yet, but we'll see. The other thing I need to let you know is uh, my mom and dad land at the airport in just about 30, no, 25 minutes uh, from Canada. And so as soon as this service is over, I'm going to uh, make a run. And it's not because I just said something heretical from the pulpit. It's because I have to go pick up my dad from the airport. Uh, I don't want to leave them waiting for too long. Uh, so that's why you won't see me 
uh, much afterwards. So we'll trust God will bless. Take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians again, and we are going to move on to the next section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, and Paul has just finished with his great explosion of praise and blessing and rejoicing in God's salvation. Chapter 1, he has now explained more fully how God has reconciled us, he has saved us as a mankind to God in verses 1 through 10, and now verses 11 to 22, he's going to talk about how we are reconciled to Christ and to each other. So let's read. Verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's ask for God's blessing again and help. Loving Father, we come before you this morning and again we ask you for help. Father, as we open the scriptures together, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would have freedom to work in our hearts and our minds and, Father, to open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us. Father, we know that it is through the preaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, that you speak. And Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear. Father, we pray also for the humility to listen and to heed the words that are here. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we open the Scriptures today. And we seek your help and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. God has a great plan to gather all things, things in heaven and things on earth, together under one head, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 gives us that plan, and we looked at that some months ago when we were in Ephesians chapter 1. It describes the plan of God to gather together all with one purpose and one plan to worship Christ. 
to love Christ and to love each other with a perfect love. But there are two great problems that stand in the way of God achieving that plan. Firstly, all mankind are cut off and separated from God. God drove mankind out of the Garden of Eden after they had sinned and fallen. And the first problem is that God must reconcile mankind as a whole to himself. And secondly, all mankind are in sin, hating both God and each other. You notice the first recorded reaction of Adam and Eve to each other after they had sinned and fallen was to blame each other. The first two brothers born, one killed the other. Man's history from Genesis chapter 3 all the way down to the present time is a record of strife and anger and wars and hatred and unrest. I heard a story that at the end of World War II, they formed the United Nations to enforce and establish and maintain world peace since the day the peace was declared, finally the end of World War II. Do you know how many years of peace there have been? Not one. How many months? Not one. How many weeks? Not even one. There was literally five single days from the end of World War II until the next war was declared and there has been a war in progress ever since. Man is constantly at war with himself. And in order for God to achieve that purpose, he must not only reconcile man to God, he also must reconcile man to man. And God has resolved these two problems in Christ and his cross. The two timbers of the cross kind of illustrate the point. The vertical upright post illustrates that all mankind must be reconciled vertically to God. But the same token, by the the horizontal post, we can see that all mankind must be reconciled to each other. So it's like this, Christ almost as he reaches out his arms on the cross brings all of humanity together and brings them up to God as one. He reconciles humanity to itself as well as humanity to God. Remember this, you know, keep this in the back of your mind as we go through all the next little bit. This introduction is going to take a good chunk of our time and then we'll go to the five points quite quickly. But like this, keep this in the back of your mind. Salvation is of the Jews, but it is for all mankind. So salvation came to us through the nation of the Jews because for them was given the law and the prophets and so on, and we'll unpack that in a minute. But it was always to be for all of mankind to come and to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So it's necessary for us to see the history of the Old Testament to see why there is an enmity between Jew and Gentile. It's necessary for us to understand how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament. How does the New Testament believer in the new community of faith relate to all that God has done in the Old Testament? It's one of the great problems of biblical studies. How do these things fit together? I remember as a young guy coming to know the Lord, and I didn't know anything about theology. I just was reading my Bible, and all I simply understood was, and my basic understanding was, I'm reading through Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. You hit the Gospels, and you hit Jesus preaching the Gospel and the cross and all of that, and you hit Acts, and all of a sudden, Acts chapter 10, and there are Gentiles just being brought in and included. And I thought, isn't it so cool? That God opened his arms wide to restore and redeem not just the Jewish nation, but all the nations of the earth. And in a sense, that's exactly what it is. 
But it's necessary. It's good for us to understand how that part of the Bible, that big chunk that most of us don't read, we tend to say in the New Testament because it's got, we think, more to do with us. But the Old Testament's critical to understand. The first 11 chapters of the Bible deal with the nations as a whole. But from Genesis 12 all the way through your Bible to Acts chapter 10, he is dealing primarily with the Jews and Israel. So how does our inclusion from Acts 10 onward relate to all that's gone before? Well, this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, is actually one of the key texts in the New Testament that helps us to understand how it works together. So let's take a look and see what God's done. And I'm going to go hop, skipping, and jumping right across the Old Testament and just pick out the highlights. And so don't try and follow the verses I've given to you on the note sheet. You can look them up later if you want. First of all, God has chosen Abraham to be the father of all who are, who have faith in God, both Jew and Gentile. Genesis 12, 1 through 5, and Galatians 3, 6 and 9, both, both say that. He is a father of all those who have faith in God. In Genesis, Sorry, God gave Abraham in Genesis 12 a covenant with promises. He promised him a seed, a nation, a land, and great blessing. Not only that, in Genesis and Exodus, God renews that covenant that he made with Abraham, with Abraham's descendants, with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and so on. In Exodus 19, God redeemed a ragtag nation of slave. All of Abraham's descendants through Isaac are redeemed out of Israel, out of Egypt, sorry, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Bible says. And then in Exodus chapter 1 through 20, God is birthing a nation of people from Abraham's physical descendants, and they're called Israel. God formed them in a very special way. They were to be a theocracy, which simply means that God is always to be their king. He is the one who is sovereignly to rule and reign over all of his people. God is always their king, even though, sadly, you hit 1 Samuel 7 and 8, and what you find there is the nation of Israel comes to Samuel the prophet, and they say, give us a king like everybody else has got. Like little kids, you know, mommy, I want a bike. Why? Because, well, Billy's got a bike and Jimmy's got a bike and Johnny's got a bike. So why can't I have a bike? And so Israel came to God and said, hey, listen, all the other nations, they've got a king. How come I can't have a king? We want a king too, like all the other nations. And God says an amazing thing to Samuel. He says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as being king over them. And one of the remarkable stories as you go through the, the New Testament, sorry, the Old Testament history is you see God is always sovereignly in control. He is still leading his people even through those kings all the way through. You hit the, the King David who is God's special chosen king. And what promise does God make to David? David says, I want to build you a house. Speaking like a house like this, a temple. And God says, no, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. And what he meant was not a house like this. He meant, I will build you a dynasty of kings that will always carry on. There will always be a son of David on the throne of David the king. And when Jesus comes, who is he? 
He is the son of David. He is the long-waited-for king. He is now ruling and reigning on a throne because he is the king. Okay, It is a theocracy that God gives them. God also gave them the law at Sinai and all the covenants. He gave them priesthood and sacrifices. God gave them limited access into his presence. If this was like the tabernacle... And we were all here to imagine there was a, well, there's a veil there. Imagine there was the Ark of the Covenant back there. Do you realize how close we would get? Go down to Springvale Road. That's about as close as we would get. If you actually look at the distances established in the, around the tabernacle and the enclosure and all the, the people camped around it, it was about a kilometer away. We could look at it from a distance and kind of see. And the high priest would go into that tabernacle once a year and not without blood. And he went in with a rope tied around his foot. So that as he went in, if he got any of the ordinances wrong and God struck him dead, they could take the rope and they could pull his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. Limited access. Once a year, never without a bowl of blood and a smoking bowl of incense rising up in front of his face unless he could physically look at the Ark of the Covenant and see it. And see the Shekinah presence of God. What's all this about? It's all God's gift to them. It's limited. It's all pointing towards Christ. But there remained throughout the history of the Israel nation, the Hebrews, there was always a great separation between God and his people. God has in grace given his people so much. All the other nations around them had nothing like this. They had so much. But there are also things that God required of his people. God required them to be circumcised as a visible sign of their participation in the covenant. God also required them to circumcise their hearts, not merely their physical bodies. But they did not circumcise their hearts. And you ask yourself, why didn't they do that? It was pride. Pride was the issue all the way through the Old Testament. Whenever there is disobedience to God, there is always pride at play, pride at work. And just a step completely aside from my message for a second, if you take nothing else away from this, and I hope you take a lot more than just this, remember that. Whenever pride comes in, there will be disobedience. Whenever pride comes in, there will be contention between man and man. Whenever pride comes in, there will be contention between us and God. There will always be disobedience flowing out of an attitude and a heart of pride. The people were required to circumcise their bodies, but also to circumcise their hearts. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, God required Israel to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, to trust him, to serve him, obey him with all their heart and soul. It's amazing. You get through this whole Leviticus and Exodus, all these laws and things that God says you got to do. And he says in Deuteronomy 10, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires you to love him, to fear him, to serve him, obey him with all your heart and soul. That's what God required. But they didn't do it. They rebelled and they refused. Why? Because of pride yet again. 
In Deuteronomy 6.13, God required them to worship Him and Him alone, but they repeatedly rebelled and refused all through the history of Israel in the Old Testament before they get sent off into exile again and again and again and again. They go turn their hearts away from God. They worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all the gods and goddesses of the land. They keep turning away from God. Why? Because pride in their hearts said, we can worship whoever we want. Not only that, but Isaiah 42 verse 6 and Isaiah 49 verse 6, God required them to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring them into participation in the covenants. The amazing thing about God's plan and economy in the Old Testament was it was never to be Israel just by themselves and everybody else pushed away. They were supposed to be working to bring all the nations like we are to evangelize and bring other peoples into and participate in those covenants. The law made so many allowances for people to come in and be included, be circumcised, keep the law and all that, be included as part of the people of God. And instead of using what God had given them as a blessing, they use it as a basis for pride. And instead of bringing people in, they push people away. Pride again. They were required in the book of Deuteronomy 15 times God says, Remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why does he keep saying that? 15 times in 32 chapters thereabouts. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because without remembering, pride would seek in. Without remembering, they would forget the Lord their God and go chasing after somebody else, which is exactly what they did. Israel sinned again and again by abandoning God and turning to idol worship. God punished them eventually for their idolatry by driving them out of the land. The Bible says, the language is quite strong. He says, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'll vomit you out. Kick you out of my land and the land will have its Sabbath and you'll go off into exile. And the nation of Israel went off into exile. Twelve tribes went away. And basically, ten and a half were never heard of again. And the one and a half tribes, some of Judah, most of Judah, and some, I think, of the tribe of the Levites. I don't know, that. double check me on that because I might be a bit wrong there. But I know for sure that Judah came back because that's why we call them the Jews. That's where the name came from. Right? They brought them back. God in grace allowed them to return to the land where they would never return to idols. But do you think they learned their lesson? No, sadly not. They still didn't seek God by faith, but by works of the law. So Ezra stands up and he reads the law. Remember that story in Ezra and Nehemiah? And he becomes the first of what's known as the Pharisees. And they decided because, well, we broke the law back then and so much that God disciplined us and drove us out of the land. So what we'll do now is we'll make sure we keep the law. And so in order to make sure we don't break it, we'll create 600 other little laws to kind of shore up the main law. So we'll just, this is how ridiculous it got. Thou shalt not spit on the Sabbath. Why? Because spitting will put a furrow in the dust of the soil. And a furrow is like plowing and plowing is working. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. That's how extreme they got. And what they were doing was they were seeking for God and his righteousness, not by faith, but by works of law. He, they sinned again and again and again. The big basically problem is this. 
The Bible says in Romans 9, 31 and 32, that they sought for righteousness by works of law and not by faith. They sinned and failed because they saw that their law-keeping, their circumcision had earned them God's favor, which we know is impossible. Instead, Israel used their privileged position, instead of using it to welcome and include others and bring them into participation of the covenants, They used it as grounds for pride and arrogance and to exclude all that had not been circumcised, the Gentiles. So what's the whole point of all this? It's a great division, great separation. You hit the New Testament, right? The Pharisees and the Jews are completely separated from the Gentiles. They want nothing to do with them. Talk about uh, prejudice. They got up in the morning and they would begin their morning prayers. Oh, Lord. I give thanks to you this day that I am not a Gentile. And the Pharisees and the, the, some of the men would pray, and this is tragically sad, I give thanks that I'm not born either a woman or a Gentile. That's how little they thought of the Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with them. There's a great alienation, a great separation, a great distinction, an exclusion of the Gentiles by the Jews. How then... Is God going to keep his main purpose and bring all those nations together? We're all here this morning. And I, I'm guessing that there are no ethnic Jewish people here. I wish there were, but I'm guessing they're probably not. Maybe. Not that I know of anyways. But we've heard the gospel, haven't we? We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know what it is to be saved and forgiven, all that. That scene in Acts chapter 9 and 10 there, 10 it is, when Peter goes to see the centurion and he's preaching the gospel, he's just watched a sheet come out of heaven with all these unclean animals inside this great big sheet and the voice of God saying, hey Peter, rise, kill and eat. No, 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 Lord, never. I've never eaten anything unclean before. And God says, no, Peter, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Three times he had to see it before he got the point. And he goes and stands in Cornelius' house. And I wish I could have been there to watch the Jews' face. Never mind the, the Gentiles. He's standing there preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ came and died on a cross to set us free from sin, hell, and death. And as he's preaching the gospel, the Spirit of God falls on that room. And all those Roman people... Unclean Gentiles, uncircumcised, don't eat with them, don't sleep with them, don't walk with them, don't keep, don't keep anything to do with them. Spirit of God falls and they come to know Christ. And it's a powerful work of God. And he goes back to Jerusalem and tells the other guys, you're not going to believe this with what happened. And they say, get together and they have a big discussion about it. And finally they go back and James, who is now the head of the church, reads this passage from the Old Testament, Genesis I think it is, about how the Gentiles will dwell in the tents of Shem. And he's describing, look, this is what God has promised from the Old Testament. God has done what we failed to do. That was his point. And all of a sudden, the gospel message goes out to the Gentile nations. You know the story. Paul goes up into Europe and Spain and all over the place. Thomas goes to the land of India. All over the world, the gospel has spread out. And now Paul is writing to Ephesian believers. We're finally back in Ephesians 2. And he's writing to Gentiles. He's saying, now this is how 
it relates. Because there's still this great tension between the Jewish and Gentile believers. One of the things that Paul will fight with all through his writings in the New Testament is something called the Judaizers. They came and said, well, in order to be saved, it's faith in God and circumcision and the Mosaic laws and the food laws and this. And, and what they were trying to do is convert them all around to ethnic Judaism. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You missed the point. It's by faith or by grace through faith, nothing else. We're not saved because we're circumcised. We're not saved because we never eat pork. Praise the Lord that we're allowed to eat pork. I love pork. I mean, we're not saved because we didn't do that. We're not kept out of it. And so now Paul writes this passage here, and he is addressing the Gentiles in the group. And now we get to the message. Let's read again, verses 11 and 12 and 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from, I'm going to change the word, Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that great news? We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not because of circumcision, all those other things. So what's the message for us today? The great news of the gospel is God has done it. In the cross, two arms, Jew in one hand, if you like, and Gentile in another, he has brought them together into one new body, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.15. He's done that. The call for us from this message This passage is this, just like Old Testament Israel, who were commanded 15 times in Deuteronomy and elsewhere besides to remember. We are called, Paul says, he gives his first command in the whole book. And you know what it is? Therefore, remember. That's the first imperative command. Up to now, it's all been explanation of things that have happened. Now we're told to do something. And the first thing we're told to do, remember. Think back. So we're going to do some remembering this morning. Number one, remember our Gentile history. Look down at your Bible again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh. It's not merely Gentiles as in racial uh, division, racial uh, identification. Okay, Jew one, Gentile the other. This is the Gentiles. And so with that word, there's associated a whole lot of other things that go with it. It isn't just because one is circumcised and one is not. There's a whole bunch of identifications that go with that. Uh, for example, I think about Indian culture. I don't, I'm not mean to pick anybody, I don't just think of Priya, but I think of beautiful colored fabrics. I think of rich, hot, spicy food, so hot that I really can't eat it. I think of a culture that's beautiful for its family and so on. There's a whole bunch of other things that I identify with the term Indian. 
right? So when you say the Gentile here, you formerly the Gentiles, he's associating a whole bunch of other things that go with it. He's thinking about Deuteronomy 18 and verse 14, where the Gentiles were described as superstitious. The Bible describes it in Matthew 18, verse 17. The Gentiles were outcasts. They were cut off from the Jews. In Romans 1, 21, the Gentiles are described as ignorant. Ignorant Gentiles. For some of you, that's not a problem to be described as ignorant. For me, hey, no problem. I can look in the mirror and go, that, that makes sense. Ignorant, right? But that's how they characterize them. Romans 2.14, the Gentiles are outside the law of God. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 2, the Gentiles are characterized as idolatrous people. So when he says, listen, you the Gentiles in the flesh, he's associating so much more within just their racial difference. Now, if we were all to trace back our history we would find that sooner or later we all come from some form of idolatrous people. My history is Ireland and England. I came over here. My great-grandfathers came over here on the convict ships from Ireland and from England. And settlers and traders a little bit later on. But that history, if you go all the way back, you know what you find? My great-great-great white back ancestors, they were worshipping Celtic and Nordic and Slavic gods and goddesses. They were idolatrous peoples. If you're European descent, you, your great, 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 great granddaddies probably worshipped a whole system of Groman and Greek and Germanic and Slavic pagan gods and goddesses. By the way, Abraham, what was his history from? Ur of the Chaldees, and what were they known for? Ur of the Chaldees, do you remember? Moon worshippers. They were worshippers of the moon. And God called him out of that and brought him and introduced him to the real God who is the God of Israel. All those, all of us, Indian, Asian peoples, they have a whole plethora of gods and goddesses that their heritage worshipped. But listen, here's the point. Remember, Gentile Christian, that God has saved you out of an idolatrous, ignorant, pagan, unbelieving heritage. There was one line of believing people all the way back to Adam, the godly line of Seth and so on down through uh, Abraham later on and so on down that way. But everybody else, we were all off worshiping something else, chunks of wood carved out and covered with gold, bugs and birds and insects and stars and moon, whatever else we worshiped, anything but God. But God in his grace, he brought us into a relationship with the living God, the true God, the real God. Remember and do not let pride creep in. By the way, just as an aside, my mom and dad are coming today so I can add this in. It's just a reminder. If you have a godly heritage, your mom, dad, grandparents, uncles, aunts, that were faithfully serving and loving the Lord their God, your God, all the days of their life, stop. Remember that and give thanks for it. If you're the first generation in this church, that your, your grandparents or your parents even still go to pagan temples and worship other gods and goddesses, plead with God for their salvation. At the same time, give thanks that God has brought you out and brought you in to be a part of His people. Remember and rejoice 
that even though we are Gentiles by flesh and blood, it is by Christ's flesh and blood given for us, poured out in his death on the cross, that we are reconciled to God and to each other. It's easy to think, oh, I'm reconciled to God. Praise the Lord. Forget Con, you know, and just we'll just keep a distance and we'll just get along and walk around each other. No, that's not what it is at all. The beautiful thing is that we are not just saved and reconciled to God alone. We are saved and reconciled into a body. And the same blood that purchased my salvation purchased your salvation. And we are saved to be reconciled to each other. He's going to leave this discussion about the church and the people of God in the next couple of chapters. What's he going to talk about? Relationships within the body of Christ and how we are to get along and work together and love each other and serve each other and minister to each other. Right? We weren't just saved to be individuals. This modern idea that you can save and forget the church and go off and do anything else you want on your own is nonsense. It's unbiblical, it is ungodly, and it denies this basic point that we were saved, reconciled to God, and reconciled to each other. But that's next sermons for next month, so we'll move on. Secondly, remember our uncircumcised state. Notice again the word of God in Ephesians 2.11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. Well, what is circumcision? I still remember the first time I asked somebody this question and got a very awkward and embarrassed answer. But basically, it's the bloody removal of the flesh, of the foreskin. And you say, why would they do that? That just sounds awful. It is this. Biblically, it is to signify the removal of sinful flesh from the life. Right? So in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, talks about how it was to illustrate the purity of a cleansed heart before God. Deuteronomy 30, and verse 6, tells us it was to illustrate and remind them of God's promise to circumcise, not their bodies, but their hearts, to deal with the biggest issue. The physical thing was nothing. Paul said, circumcision is neither here nor there. It's a circumcision of the heart that matters. In Genesis 17, 7 through 12, it was to signify the participation of the recipient in the covenant of God. The Hebrews performed circumcision by the hands of man, and the Hebrews based their hope of God's acceptance on circumcision rather than God's grace through faith. And Paul makes a point that is those who have been circumcised in their hearts, those who have had their hearts purified by God, those are the ones that are truly circumcised. Listen to the word of God. This is Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So remember this, that we were once excluded from God's covenant sign, but remember and rejoice that God has circumcised our hearts. Is Christ's work on the cross 
made it possible for God to purify our hearts and remove the guilt and the stain of sin. Remember that. They used circumcision as a measure of pride. We are the circumcised. We got something that nobody else has got. We're special. We're different. We're superior was the attitude that came rolling out of them. And Paul says, no, it's those who God has circumcised your heart. God has done a work in your heart to purify you from the guilt and the stain of sin. Remember and rejoice that God circumcised our hearts. Don't let pride creep in. Brothers and sisters, how easy it is for pride to creep in amongst the people of God to look at ourselves and we look at the sickening state of our world and start to think to ourselves, well, you know, I would never do this and I would never do that. And I would never go there. And we need to remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, every single day, day there but for the grace of God go you. And by the way, you don't walk there. Most times you run there. The Jews had allowed what God had given them to become a source of pride. And because of it, God had to deal with them harshly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul warns us in Romans chapter 11, I believe it's 22 or 23 in there. He says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. And what he's saying is this, watch out, watch over your heart, watch your walk. Walk with God in fear and in trembling. Walk in humility because God who broke off, he snapped off the branches of his own people because of their stubborn, hard-hearted disobedience against him and he grafted us in instead. He said, you watch out unless you do the same. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to remember so that pride will not take a root in our hearts and become and create huge problems. We are called to remember to produce in us humility. Take your Bibles for a second. Jump off topic. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Isaiah. It's one of the verses I think we put in as a memory verse a few months ago. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. I was listening again to uh, C.J. Mahaney. If you have an opportunity to go online, look up C.J. Mahaney on YouTube, and you'll find a bunch of sermons by him. Uh, Sovereign Grace Church, I believe it is, in the United States. Uh, exceptional preacher. He was preaching on this passage for, I think the sermon was an hour and 31 minutes. Don't worry, I won't imitate. Uh, but This is what he was preaching from. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. And just the second part, he says this, speaking for God. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And the point that CJ was making in his great message was that God will turn his face away from those who are proud and lifted up in heart. What's one of the things that God hates, abominates? It's the pride of man's heart. But to the one who is humble, 
To the one who remembers what God has done for him. One who remembers that it's nothing of ourselves that God has saved us. One who remembers and rejoices that it's God who did the work of circumcision. It's in our hearts, not in our flesh. It's God that who has saved us by the blood of Christ and stays humble. Why is it that God gave us the, the communion service? Why do you say, do this in remembrance of me? Because brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded constantly that it was the body of Christ that was given for us. It was the blood of Christ that was shed for us that we might be set free, washed clean, and have a relationship with the living God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember. Remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh, but God has brought you in and made you his people. Remember that you who once were considered outcasts because you were uncircumcised, but God has circumcised your heart. And that's the important one. Praise the Lord. It's not through physical circumcision that we're brought near to God. Praise the Lord. It's not through physical circumcision that we are reconciled to the Jews. But through a circumcised heart, we require a circumcised heart, and so do they. One of the points that Paul will make. Remember and rejoice. It is through the blood of Christ, not through our own flesh and blood, that we are reconciled to God and to each other. Thirdly, remember our separation. Look again in verse number 12. The Bible says, Remember that you were at that time separate from the Christ and from the excluded, sorry, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now notice who we're separated from. He says, you were at that time separate from Christ. And almost all of us will almost instinctively think of Jesus Christ. And that's not exactly what he's talking about. The, the word in Greek is the word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the word Mashiach in Hebrew, which is Messiah. And what he's meaning here is not so much that you are separated from the person of Christ, but you are separated from everything that the Messiah meant to the Jews. There's so much more than just Jesus Christ as far as the Messiah is going. Yes, he is the Messiah, obviously. Duh. But... The messianic hope is huge. It was something so much more. There was a hope that those people had all through the Old Testament. They were looking for their Messiah. When will he come? In Genesis chapter 3, outside the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are promised a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the beginning of a messianic hope. We're looking for that seed that will one day crush the serpent's head. Outside of the Chaldees, God promises Abram to, to uh, give him a seed, to give him a son who would be through him all the... Let me back up and say it again. God promises him a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Isaac's born. He thinks, well, that's the guy. No, that's only a small, partial, shadowy fulfillment of that promise. Paul jumps over to Galatians chapter 3 and says, no, no, that seed was speaking of Christ. And he came, and he was the fulfillment of that promise. And so Adam and Eve and Abram are looking for a seed. You remember the day Abraham and, I, and uh, Isaac are walking up the Mount Moriah track? And Isaac's behind Dad with the load of wood on his shoulder. He's the one who has to carry all the wood. Abram's got the fire and the knife. 
And Abe, Isaac does a little inventory. We got fire. We got knife. We got wood. Wait a minute. Where's the sacrifice? He says, Father, where's the sacrifice for the offering? And I can almost in my mind's eye see Abraham turn slightly and look back towards his son. And very quietly he states an incredible thing. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. What's he saying? God's going to provide a lamb who will be the one that takes away the sin of the world. Now, he probably didn't know that in his context. He was just looking at the situation thinking, I'm hoping, I'm pleading with God in my heart that when we get to the top and I build the altar and stack up the wood, God's going to intervene. There will be a lamb provided. What do we see? God did just exactly that. But that messianic hope went all through the Old Testament. You hit the uh, the exile and the Jews go off into exile and they come back and they're rebuilding the city and the land. They're reoccupying the land and they keep looking around for this great kingdom that God's been promising. And what happens? The Greeks walk in there and stump all over them. Oh, that's not working. And so some guys rise up, uh, the Maccabees, and they push out and they get a little bit of freedom back. And what happens? They get a high priest established for a little while. And then all of a sudden the Romans come near. And the high priest says, hey, would you help me become the high priest in Israel? And the Roman soldier said, sure, I'll help you. I'll help you become the king in Israel. And the Romans walk in and flatten Israel again. And all through those 400 years of silence between the two testaments... Over and over and over again, the Jews are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for somebody who will drive out the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of David and, and rule and reign. And the Jews will once again be on top of the pile. Remember Peter, the disciples? They're walking with Jesus up to the mountain where Jesus is going to go back to be with his father. What do they ask him? Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can almost see the, Pharise- the disciples. Hey, you've done this whole suffering sacrifice thing. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Is it time? And Jesus just said, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by His own counsel. But go back to Jerusalem. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. Turn all the nations, all the Gentiles into followers of Christ. And he goes up to be with his father and he rules and reigns on his father's throne. There's a messianic hope. And Paul's saying, listen, Gentiles, remember that time when you were separated from all that messianic hope. You had no hope whatsoever. Whereas the Jews, the, Je- the Hebrews, all through their history and all through that intertestamental period and all through the occupations of Greeks and Romans always held on to that hope that the Messiah was coming. They were separated from that. We Outside of Christ had no hope. What did Paul say back in Ephesians 2? We were dead in our transgressions. That's not it. Um, Without hope. It's there. I know it is. Now, you know where it is? I know where it is. It's right in verse 12 where I was looking. It's below, not above. (laughs) He says, you were without hope. That's what we once were. We had no hope once over and no basis for hope. But Paul is saying, listen, at that time you were separate. So remember the fact that you had no hope, but rejoice. 
Rejoice also that now in Christ Jesus we have a hope. Guess what? Their Messiah is our Messiah. He said, no, wait a minute. Messiah is Jews. We have Christ. Yeah, it's just two, one word, two languages that mean exactly the same thing. He's our Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah to come still. Sadly, they didn't recognize him when he came the first time. Guess what we're looking for? We're looking for Jesus to come back, are we not? We are longing for his return. Where those who long for him, we were looking at First Peter on, on Wednesday night at how we have a longing and an expectation for the grace that will be given to us when Jesus is revealed. And Paul's saying, listen, Gentile Christians, remember the fact that you once had no hope, no Messiah to look forward to, but now in Christ Jesus, you have a Messiah. You have a hope. He is coming back. And you join alongside the Jews, and they're still looking for the Messiah, and we are too. We know exactly who he is. We know the scars he has, his hands and his feet, and we know one day the heavens will be open, and he'll drop down, and he'll be here. And we'll see him again in power and great glory. We've got a hope. Remember, beloved, remember and rejoice that we have been included in that messianic hope. Remember and do not let pride creep in. Remember and rejoice that we are now looking and longing for the Messiah to come for the second time. He is our Messiah. He is our Christ as much as he is Israel's Messiah. Remember and rejoice that in Christ we have now been included. Remember and rejoice that Israel's Messiah has come and reconciled us to God. Remember and rejoice that Israel's Messiah has come and by His blood has reconciled us to each other. I'm going to just skip over point four. We'll pick it up next week because this is going to carry right through to next week. I want to just wrap it up. Remember, remember, Christian, that we were the Gentiles in the uncircumcision, but rejoice. Remember and rejoice that we have been included. I don't know how you can how to get across. I think all of us know those horrible moments when you've been a part of a group of people. And for one reason or another, you have been excluded from the group. You look at all the... the in people, you know. When I was growing up in high school, there was the in people were always skinny and, and rich with nice clothing and good looking, and I was always not so skinny and not so rich, and I never had nice clothes, and all, I had good clothes. Don't get me wrong. There's always a sense of alienation. When I went to Canada as a young guy, um, I was the only guy in my class that spoke with an Aussie accent. And so I said things, really. Yeah, I did have an Aussie accent once, many, many years ago. And I went to Canada, and they all asked me, well, where are you from? You sound so weird and different. And I'd say, I'm from Australia. And then I came back here, and they said, where are you from? You sound so weird and different. Well, now I'm back, and I still sound different. But the point is this. There's a sense in which all of us understand that, that idea that we, to be excluded, to be cut off, to be pushed outside. And all those groups, all those in things usually require something that we have to do or give. You gotta wear the right clothes. 
You got to have the right income. You got to drive the right kind of car. My friends were all driving uh, Monte Carlos and Chevelles and, and all these fast American muscle cars. I had a Dodge Aspen, right? It was named after a tree. It doesn't and suggest speed. And there was this, I, there was this sort of this inner group that I never felt a part of. And all those groups require something of us. The Jews said, you know what? You want to be part of one of us? You got to be circumcised. You got to go through all this stuff. You got to keep the, the Mosaic law. Don't eat this and don't eat that and only eat this on that day and all this other stuff. And the real problem was that sin was in our lives. We were cut off from God. I think one of the most incredible scenes that ought to cause us to weep as we read it in the Bible, is that God drove them out of the garden. You cannot come near me again. And the entrance of the garden, he put two cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to protect the way to the tree of life, lest they eat of the tree and live forever. You know what's outside outside of the tabernacle on the veil? Two cherubim. Don't come near. Oh, we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. There's two cherubim. Don't come near. Separated, pushed away. And the Jews thought they could get there because they were circumcised. They thought they could get there because of all this law keeping. And it became pride and arrogance and hard heartedness. But the wonderful story of the gospel message is it's nothing to do with us. Praise God, it's not because of circumcision. Praise God, it's not because I wear the right clothing, I'd be stuck. Praise God, it's not because I have enough money or I do all the right stuff. Praise God in heaven is by grace. Through faith. He said, you cannot bridge this distance, Nelson. So I will take my grace and I will just pour out truckload after truckload after truckload on top of you until you are so covered in grace. And I will reach down in the person of Christ and he will go to the cross. And every single one of the law's demands on you will be met in Christ. Every single sin that you committed that deserved death, he will pay it. You were playing that song, Leah, in the offertory. I couldn't remember the name of the song, but one of the lines in the song was, you will look on him and pardon me. I thought, that's amazing. He looks on Christ and he pardons me. You, formerly the Gentiles in the flesh, called on circumcision, separate from messianic hope, excluded from the nation of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope, but now, (laughs) but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You can know this morning what it means to be included There is a fellowship that we have, man with man and man with woman, and Jew and Gentile, that is at a certain level. But there is a fellowship that we have with God, an inclusion with God that goes infinitely beyond that. 
We are included. We are bound together with Christ and we have a relationship with God. And all those things that once cut us off and kept us away have been dealt with and done away with and now we can have a relationship with Him. I don't know where you stand before God this morning. I'll be honest. It is possible to walk into a church year after year, month after month, and week after week. Because you come to church every week, there is an idea in the back of your head that I know Christ. It's possible to live a good life. Never say a swear word. Never steal anything. Never, never, never. All kinds of nevers. And somehow think just short of subconsciously, that that makes you right with God. That you don't need to be saved. That all that you're doing is enough to make you acceptable to God. And my answer was, take a look at the Pharisees. They were circumcised. They kept the law. They kept every last rule they made to the nth degree. And they were absolutely cut off. Jesus said of them, Woe! is you. It means doomed are you because of it. And the great danger, brothers and sisters, is that we can know so much about Christianity. We can know so much Scripture. We can know so much theology and fail to know the Son of God and fail to know what it means to be truly saved to believe in Him, to be reconciled to God, and to have life everlasting. For us as Christians, my urge this morning is remember, believer, remember where God saved you from, remember what He saved you from, remember who you were saved to, Christ, and remember who you were saved into, the body of Christ. Remember and rejoice. Because great is our salvation. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going uh, to pray, and then we'll sing the benediction. Loving Father, we come before you again. And Father, we want to say thank you that it is not circumcision that saves us. Father, we thank you and we praise you that it is not keeping food laws and all those other things that they were required to do and be that saves us. But Father, we rejoice this morning. We give thanks to you, O God, that it is blood. Father Peter would say we were not saved with things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Father, we rejoice and we give you thanks, O God, that it is Christ's blood that sets us free. We give you thanks, O God, that he was willing to take our place on a cross. We give you thanks. We worship this morning, O God. Because 
It was his flesh and blood that was poured out that he might circumcise our hearts and purify us. And Father, we haven't even touched on the the citizenship that he has brought us into a people. That Father, you are creating a people for your own possession. You're creating a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen group of people. That's, That's us, Father, but not for anything that we have done. All because of your grace. Father, I plead with you this morning that if there is one person standing in this room that has somehow deceived themselves into thinking that it's religious observance, faithfully going to church every Sunday that makes them acceptable to you, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, awaken them to the reality that that's not it. Father, I plead with you also that you would prevent us from becoming prideful, from seeing the work that you have done in us as somehow reason for boasting. Father, as we were looking at last Sunday, we give thanks that you did not choose many wise, you did not choose many noble, You did not choose many rich or many strong, Father, but you chose the things that are not in order to shame the things that are. You chose the weak and the foolish and the simple and the base. And Father, so that we might boast in Christ. Father, we thank you for those great words in Ephesians, but God made us alive. But now in Christ, we've been brought near. Oh God, I plead with you to do a work amongst this church, amongst all of us, Father. Father, strip away the pride that has crept in. Tear it away. Bring us in humility before you, oh God. Help us to humble our hardened hearts to seek your face. Father, if there is broken relationships in this church, believer with believer, then, Father, I plead with you that they would be put right. Father, I plead with you for a great work amongst your people, amongst all of us. We ask you these things, Father, giving thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.